Hello and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great Remastered, Episode 13, Victory Lap. Darius needed to get away. He needed to put as much distance between himself and Alexander as he could, as quickly as possible. So, where to go? Obviously, he couldn't go west, as that was now controlled by Alexander. He would have to retreat into the interior of his empire. He had two routes he could choose, either southeast into Babylonia, or slightly less southeast, to Ecbatana in Media. Darius chose Media. Media was a much harder region to travel through, being through the mountains, which would be awkward for Alexander's large force, and not too bad for Darius's few thousand followers. While Babylonia was an easy route for any force, Babylonia was also the route to some of the richest cities of the Persian Empire, Persepolis, Susa, and of course, Babylon. So, guessing that Alexander would head to Babylon, he went to Ecbatana. His guess proved right. Alexander went straight to Babylon from Arbella. He approached the city in battle formation, not sure on what reception he would get. It wasn't clear by this stage how things would turn out. After the last time he routed Darius at Isis, he spent seven months camped outside Tyre. There was no guarantee that Babylon would be any different. Although, he needn't have worried. The people, along with their magistrates and priests, flocked out of the city to greet Alexander, and presented him with presents. They offered him the city, the citadel, and all of its treasure, and Alexander triumphantly marched into the city. Now, a question I have asked so many times. Why? There are, of course, the more general reasons that would cause many more cities and regions to surrender without a fight. He had, after all, just defeated Darius's huge army in the plains which favoured Darius's forces. He had already control of the Western Persian Empire and had taken Tyre, the untakeable city. But there are other reasons which are specific to Babylon. I spoke earlier about why Egypt surrendered to Alexander without a fight, such as the oppression of their religion. And of course, we cannot forget that Cambyses stabbed the Apis. The Persians didn't stab the Babylonian Asis, mostly because there wasn't a Babylonian Apis, but you get the feeling that they would have done if given the chance. Xerxes had melted down the statue of Bel-Marduk, and destroyed his temple in 484. He destroyed the Babylonian kingdom around this time too. I don't mean that he conquered it, it was already well under Achaemenid control. What I mean is, he didn't take the title of King of Babylon. He used many other titles, such as King of Kings, but refused to take this title, which his father, Darius the Great, had used. The Babylonians were vexed. They rebelled several times in the 480s, but couldn't throw off the Persian yoke. When Alexander came knocking, they were more than ready to embrace him. Alexander merely had to order the temple rebuilt, and the people loved him, 
while in Babylon, Alexander did the usual things, that is, make sacrifices and appoint governors. I bring this up due to two points of interest. Firstly, he continued being respectful towards Babylonian religion, following the instructions of the Chaldeans, which is a fancy word for the priests of Belmarduk. Remember the Chaldeans, as, if you're feeling superstitious, they play a huge part in the death of Alexander. The second thing is that Mazias was appointed governor of the city. So what, you ask? Well, Mazias was the first oriental governor of a region. That's significant. There is also the question of why Mazias was given that honour, given the sea force against Alexander at Galgamela. It has been suggested that either for the role he played in the Battle of Galgamela, as he had been one of the best generals for the Persians, and this, that this could be a sign of Alexander trying to forgive him to show a new cooperation between the Macedonians and Persians. Or it could be that Mazias was somehow involved in organising the surrender of Babylon. We just don't know. Either way, Alexander headed out of Babylon and made his way to Susa. On this march, or at some other point in Babylonia, Alexander is said to have conducted some uh, scientific experiments? Alexander is said to have been impressed by some naphtha, which gushed out of the earth. This naphtha was apparently like bitumen, and was highly flammable. The locals then showed it off, by sprinkling some along the streets, waiting for it to go dark, and setting the naphtha alight, and watching the fire spread along the line in a fraction of a second. So, what was the naphtha? Yes, you guessed it, oil. So, what did they do with the naphtha? As I've said, they conducted scientific experiments, although torture may be a better word. I think you can see where this is going. One member of Alexander's entourage, who was in charge of keeping the king amused, decided to cover a boy, Stephanus, who was described as having an absurdly ugly face, but an agreeable singing voice, with the naphtha, and setting the naphtha alight. If the naphtha burned and wouldn't be put out, it would show the power of it. For reasons I do not understand at all, though I guessed he was under significant pressure, the boy agreed to this experiment. As soon as he had been anointed with the naphtha, flames broke out all over his body, and Alexander feared for his life. By chance, there were many attendants nearby carrying water for the king's bath, who, with great difficulty, put the fire out. The boy, obviously, was severely burned, and was critically ill for a long time afterwards. That is all Plutarch says on the matter, so I think we are to assume the boy survived. Well, that wasn't a lovely story, wasn't it, boys and girls? So, let's carry on with the narrative for some non-setting people on fire activity. En route to Susa, Alexander was met by representatives from the city. After the Battle of Galgamela, Alexander sent a messenger to Susa, and he returned with the governor's son and the decision of the city. 
Susa would surrender itself to Alexander, and turn over all of its treasure. We all saw that coming. Alexander reached Susa 20 days after leaving Babylon, and received the treasure of the Sisi, which would put Alexander's money woes to rest forever. Do you recall when I said that Alexander was having money trouble, and he started the campaign 200 talents in debt? In Susa, Alexander took possession of 50,000 talents of silver, not to mention the treasures that Xerxes had taken from Greece in his invasion, including some statues which were sent back home to Athens. Before Alexander left Susa, he sent 3,000 talents to Antipater to help him deal with the Aegis Revolt, which we've already covered. He received reinforcements from Macedonia, both cavalry and infantry, and made some modifications to the companion cavalry. The companions were divided into squadrons, and Alexander then divided each squadron into two companies, each under the command of officers who would distinguish themselves. When Alexander advanced beyond Susa, he found the province of Persis difficult to penetrate. Not only was the country mountainous, but it was defended by the bravest of the Persians, since Darius had taken refuge there. In spite of these obstacles, Alexander found a guide who showed him the way by making a short diversion. So starts Plutarch Alexander, chapter 37. What Plutarch is telling us, very briefly, is of a triumph almost as great as that of Gaugamela, when Alexander reached Persia through the Zagros Mountains in the midwinter of 331-330. Alexander left Susa and headed for Persia, and quite quickly he entered the territory of the Uxians, the local tribes. Those on the plain surrendered, but the Persians had never subjugated the hill tribes. Whenever the Persian monarch and his army wished to pass through the land of these tribes, the Persians paid the Uxians so they could march through the hills. The hill tribes had stayed independent from Persia for 200 years, and so now there was another army marching through their land, they expected the same treatment. They sent messengers to Alexander asking for tribute, and Alexander told them to meet him at the mountain pass, where he would give them what they asked for. So, Alexander decided to approach the pass, but on rough ground, in the night, with a force of around 8,000. Within a day he reached the villages, and plundered them before marching on the pass, where the Oxians were planning on meeting him with the strongest force they could muster. But Alexander made it there first. He began the attack from the high ground, and the natives were taken by surprise, and probably did the most logical course of action. They fled to the hills. Unfortunately for the natives, Alexander was, as usual, several steps ahead. He had already sent Craterus to the high ground, which the tribesmen were fleeing to. I would imagine the tribesmen to be once again surprised to see the Macedonians, but most would not be surprised for too long. Craterus made short work of them, and so Alexander met with the Oxians for terms. The Oxians begged Alexander for their land. Eventually, Darius's mother was able to persuade Alexander to allow them to keep it. 
The tribute was decided at 100 horses a year, 500 mules, and 30,000 sheep. This was the cost of opposing the lord of all Asia. Alexander now decided to divide his army. Alexander wanted to reach Persepolis as soon as possible, and so sent Parmenio and the baggage train on the long route along the coast, while he made straight for Persepolis through the Zagros Mountains. The march cannot have been pleasant, marching through a mountain range in early January, but it was going quite successfully. Alexander eventually reached the Persian gates, which, after the description about the Battle of Isis, you should know means the pass into Persia. As he marched through the gates, he found a wall blocking the pass. This wasn't a part of the plan. I'm sure the Macedonians quite quickly noticed that the hills either side of the pass were full of Persians. This wasn't a part of the plan either. The Persians then began attacking the Macedonians with missile weapons. Needless to say, the plan had to be abandoned. Alexander ordered the retreat. He had been outwitted, and he cannot have been happy. So, what on earth was going on? When Darius retreated to Ecbatana to gather a new force, he had not left Persia defenceless. He placed Ariobazanes in the Zagros Mountains to thwart Alexander's attempts to invade Persia, and hopefully delay him enough for Darius to gather another army. So, on that cold January day, when Alexander wasn't expecting resistance, and hadn't sent scouts out, he was met by Ariobazanes and 40,000 of his closest friends. Well, at least according to Arian. Some scholars doubt this. For one, Curtius and Diodorus both offer figures of around 25,000, while the Encyclopedia Iranica, an encyclopedia all about Iran created by the Columbia University, an Ivy League university in New York, guesses that due to the dire Persian situation and Greek inaccuracy on figures, that the real strength was more in the region of 300 to 700. So, I don't know the size of the Persian force, but 300 to 700 seems a bit low, and 40,000 a bit high, and we'll leave it at that. However big this Persian force was, Alexander needed a way around it. Luckily for him, a few prisoners did know a way around the pass. With this critical piece of information, one of the most brilliant pieces of tactical genius came into being. He would divide his force of around 10,000 into four segments. A small force, less than 1,000, stayed with Craterus at the main camp to attack the Persians head-on. Meanwhile, Alexander and a force of about 3,000 led by Ptolemy would go around the pass. A fourth and final segment was told to go ahead and begin work on crossing a nearby river. So, the Macedonians marched out that night, and were all in place before dawn. Graterus about to attack the fortified wall. Alexander around the back of the Persian fortified wall, and Ptolemy waiting in the hills. Alexander pounced on the first enemy outpost, and then overwhelmed most of the second. By this time, word had spread to the third outpost, but they simply fled 
rather than warn Ariobazanes, who was still clueless. And so, Alexander launched his attack against the main Persian position, and, just as they attacked, they sounded the horns, and Craterus launched his attack on the opposite side. The Persians panicked, and began retreating to their inner defences, but Ptolemy had already come down off his hill, straight into the middle of the Persian camp. The Persians, running for their lives, like the Uxians, found it too late. Many leaped off the cliffs to escape. No one knows what happened to Ariobazanes after this, but I doubt he lived much longer if he survived the event at all. This victory, if you think there was a sizable force there, was the last time Alexander would have to deal with a sizable Persian force, and so many deem this to be a very significant point in Alexander's campaigns. From this great victory, he advanced into Persia and marched triumphantly into Persepolis. His march to the capital was so quick that no one had time to take the treasure. Plutarch and Strabo state the treasure at 40,000 talents, while Diodorus and Curtius give figures of 120,000 talents. Now, Alexander would stay at Persepolis for a few months, and while there, he burnt down the Persian palace. According to Plutarch, Alexander had been invited to a drinking party, where an Athenian mistress of Ptolemy, Theus, gave a speech. Theus said that being in the palace of the Persians made up for all her previous troubles, and that she, a woman, wanted to set fire to the palace of Xerxes, he who burned down Athens. That way, history would know that a woman who had followed Alexander had taken more vengeance for all the wrongs committed against Greece than all other Greek commanders. The Macedonians loved this idea, and Alexander was persuaded to burn it down. Plutarch notes that some of his sources say it happened this way, while others state it was deliberate policy. But all agree Alexander quickly regretted the decision and ordered the fire be put out. But it was too late. Arian states Parmenio tried talking Alexander out of it, as it would cause the Asians to dislike him. Seeing him as a conqueror, rather than a ruler, and it made no sense to destroy his own property. Arian adds that he thinks it was hardly revenge, as the Persians who had committed the crimes against Greece were long dead. There is another reason why it is important. To many Greeks, this marks the end of their campaign. They had taken revenge for the sacking of Athens, the mission statement of the League of Corinth. They fully expected Alexander to lead them back home. Alexander would persuade them to go on. But this disenchantment would grow until his men refused to go one step further. If you've enjoyed today's episode, visit us online at thehistoryofpodcast.com, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, twitter.com forward slash thehistoryofpod, youtube.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next week when we cover Alexander's pursuit of Darius. Darius.